welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass podcast. I'm your host, Liam McEwen, and today I am joined by Armando Salguero of the Miami Herald. Armando, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Liam. Anytime. Of course, of course. Going to talk about some dolphins, but first, as always, we're going to start by Armando. How about you just take us through your journey in sports media from when you first realized that journalism was what you wanted to do to where you are now covering the dolphins? Wow. So, uh, if you want to go all the way back, all the way back, my sophomore year in high school, which down here in Miami Dade County is at the time. Your first year of high school, ninth grade was not uh, high school. I asked the counselor if I could take a journalism course, and she said, "No, uh, air conditioning. You're you're going to want to take air conditioning repair." <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, I, I don't want to repair air conditioners, but okay." And so that's what I took for a year. And of course, um, no, I hated it. I don't want to be fitting pipes and doing that. So uh, the next year, I got the uh, journalism course, and it was fun. And I could actually put words together, mm-hmm. and it didn't involve math. So that was it. And one thing led to another. I got a scholarship to a junior college to be on the newspaper and the editor of the paper quit my third day on campus. And the advisor said, Hey, Armando, guess what? You're the editor. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. I was working a part-time job at the time because my parents couldn't afford to send me to school. Um, at the Metro Zoo in Miami. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it, it was amazing. Uh, fun, fun time, uh, but, you know, stinky time. So, uh, because, you know, animals are animals. And um, one thing led to another. The advisor who was on the college newspaper also worked for the Miami news at the time. Mm -hmm. And he got the high school reporter to hire me taking, you know, high school sports scores, 7 PM to two in the morning for this little, the Miami news was a little Mm -hmm. PM newspaper that was overshadowed by the Miami Herald behemoth. And that's what I did for $90 a week. Uh, three days a week, $90 a week. And I thought it was awesome. And I thought I had money. And one thing led to another. They hired me. And then the news went out of business and the Herald hired me. And then the Palm Beach Post hired me. And then the Herald rehired me. And then ESPN hired me. And then ESPN fired me. (laughs) And then the Herald (laughs) rehired me. So here I am. Okay. Wow. All right. Well, let's start with uh, uh, the zoo thing. Uh, yeah. Third day on campus, you're working at a zoo, and then you suddenly become the editor of the paper. That's extremely funny. How did you handle, uh, I don't know, getting thrown into the fire like that? I was stupid. I thought I could do it. You know, young. <laughs> and so, 
So I just said, okay, this happens to everybody. Let's do this. And yeah, it, it led to a lot of mistakes and it led to a lot of faux pas. And it also le- led to a lot of learning mm-hmm. and um, taking of responsibility and growing up a little bit. So it was great. By the way, I, I got to warn you, if you hear thunder in the background, it's because we're getting one of our usual afternoon thunderstorms down here in South Florida. It's not God is not angry at me while I'm talking. <laughs> to you. Well, thanks for the heads up. I would have erred on the side of God, but we'll definitely keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, so that's quite an experience, you know, kind of almost starting off at the top instead of being right in the, you know, in the, in the gears there. But We'll jump to uh, when you left the news, when the news shut down, you got hired by the Herald. How did that kind of process come about for you? It was not uh, a lot of fun at the beginning. The morning I was supposed to leave to go on a trip. I was covering the University of Miami at the time for the Miami News. Mm -hmm. And that morning I was supposed to leave to go to South Bend, Indiana, because Miami was going to play Notre Dame. And that morning, I got a call from the office. Everyone, every reporter, every employee of the Miami News has to come in. We have a meeting. We come in. Obviously, something is yeah. is wrong because, you know, they're, they're not caring about missing flights and canceling trips and so forth. And the, the meeting was, we're going out of business. This was late October or early October of 1988. And the news was we're ceasing operations on New Year's Day or New Year's Eve, 1988. We will not exist the first day of January, 1989. And obviously you are now unemployed. <laughs> so so the, the beauty of that time, it really, you know, really did work out for me is that the Miami Herald was one floor down in the building on the fifth floor. The news was on the sixth. I interviewed with the, with the Herald and they hired me. And I was one of three people from the Miami news that the Miami Herald hired, which was a blessing for me because I realized that there was a lot of incredible journalists at the Miami news who were now unemployed and had to change their lives completely. Um, Going somewhere else, living somewhere else, being unemployed. For me, it was the elevator goes to the fifth floor now instead of the sixth floor. And by the way, there was a severance package involved. So I'm going to still make money from the Miami news going out of business while working for the Miami Herald and getting paid by them too. So the, the terrible situation for me really worked out. And then, you know, from there within six months, I was covering the university of Miami again. Uh, it was as if nothing had happened in my life other than I doubled my salary for 26 weeks. Uh, it was just crazy. Yeah, that's quite a time of transition for sure. What did they have you start off covering those first six months? Yeah, the Herald had uh, what they called back then bureaus uh, in different parts of the city. Mm -hmm. And I was doing sports in the Northwest Bureau. 
which means basically you are, you know, covering high school games and on Friday nights or Saturday nights or Thursday nights down here. Um, and you're writing about, you know, little leagues and stuff like that. Yep. And obviously I was not happy those first six months because I had already been covering the University of Miami football program, mm -hmm. which was a monster in the 80s. And it was a lot of fun and there was a lot of talent. And those guys were great to, to talk to every day. And Jimmy Johnson, even then, was a bigger than life type of guy. Um, so I went from that to, you know, writing about karate tournaments <laughs> for, for 12 year olds for six months. But, you know, again, it was, I needed the job. My mm -hmm. family needed the money and I, you know, it was offered and I took it, but within six months, I didn't miss a beat as far as the football season was concerned. Mm -hmm. My last day of football season, 1988, I covered the University of Miami, and the first day of football season, 89, I covered the University of Miami. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, well, with the, so a lot of the journalists that I've talked to did something, obviously they didn't have quite your uh, little roller coaster of a journey in that regard, but they started off or early in their career covered high school sports, and they for the most part, a lot of them look back on it somewhat fondly, thinking about kind of just the early journalistic practices they established while doing that. Do you feel something similar? No doubt about it. I mean, I covered high school sports for the Miami News for six years before I got the, the, the Hurricanes beat. And you really learn how to deal with people. You really learn how to understand the game you're walking the sideline mm -hmm. and it's totally different i get it than you know the college game or the or the nfl but you see things and hear things and come to appreciate the speed of of games and the the viciousness of hits and i have to tell you high school football in south florida is a thing mm -hmm. if you look at the rosters of nfl teams there is no NFL team that does not have a South Florida high school football connection on it. And every year the NFL puts out, you know, the, the, the most prolific hometown for high school sports, as far as guys on an NFL roster. And typically what you see is, you know, uh, maybe, Deerfield Beach, number one, Fort Lauderdale, number two, Miami, number three. Uh, all of that is South Florida, all of it. And it's all South Florida. And, you know, obviously that's not the actual rankings, but yeah. it's, uh, it, it's, you know, they, they say it's huge in Texas and huge in California. I would put up a, you know, South Florida high school all-star team 10 years down the road against any California team or any, um, you know, Texas team any day of the week. Yeah, certainly. Uh, there's going to be a high school football program to cover South Florida would probably be it with all the big names and it kind of, you know, you can see the talent in front of you. I feel like that would probably help. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, uh, right now I live, I would say, 30 minutes from St. Thomas Aquinas High School. And Jason Taylor, who is a Pro Football Hall of Famer, is the defensive line coach. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and, yeah, and, you know, Joey Boza went there, and Nick Boza went there, and Brian Cox's son went there. And any number of, you know, every year that place produces maybe five, future NFL players. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's just one school. Uh, it's a big school, but it's one school. And it's the same thing in Dade County. Dade County is just incredible with the talent that they put out. Uh, you know, all those guys, Amari Cooper, he's from South Florida. All those guys that mm-hmm. the Minnesota Vikings, well, let's see, their running back is from South Florida. Uh, it's, it's everywhere, everywhere. Uh, the Carolina Panthers starting quarterback, yeah, he's from South Florida. So it, it's all about that down here. Yeah, pretty impressive resume. So then that, uh, that first stint with the Herald, how long did you do that for? Actually, I did it for like, uh, I think I did it, what was it? I did it for a year. <laughs> and then my best friend, uh, was the editor at the Palm Beach Post, mm-hmm. and he hired me away and gave me like a a hundred percent raise. And I said, "I love you, Mama Harold, but I'm gonna go." Have <laughs> to turn that. And down. the funny thing about that is, this is this is weird. The same guy who hired me to go to the Palm Beach Post a year later left the Palm Beach Post to go to the Miami Herald. So you know what happened next? You went back to Miami Herald? <laughs> I went back to the Miami Herald a year and a half later, and it, they were heady times. They really was. And, you know, I, I was a kid. I was, well, what, 20-some-odd 20, 20 years old, 24, 22. And I was like, Okay, I'll do this. That I'll do this as many times as I need to do this. And obviously, it was the different time in newspapers back then. I mean, the Miami Herald on a Sunday, their circulation was six hundred thousand people, mm-hmm. and during the week it was five hundred thousand people. So that was that was back then. That's not the case anymore, obviously. And it's not the case for most U.S. newspapers. Yeah. Well, uh, nice little Miami love circle down there. So were you working the University of Miami beat throughout those transitions? No. So when the Palm Beach Post hired me away, that was my first year to do the Miami Dolphins, which was 1990. Mm -hmm. And when the Miami Herald hired me back, Obviously, they hired me back to do to continue to cover the Miami Dolphins. So I've been covering the Dolphins since 1990, uh, except for those couple of years that I was working at ESPN. Mm-hmm. And then, so how did you, uh, when you made that initial transition from covering college to professional football, what was the differences like for you as a journalist? Less talent. <laughs> <laughs> 
again, you, you got to understand, I was covering the University of Miami football team, and that was Russell Maryland playing next to Cortez Kennedy, and that was Brett Perriman on the outside and on the same team with Michael Irvin and also Brian Blades and his brother Benny Blades. And all of them were high-round NFL draft picks. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I covered Jimmy Johnson, who was now the coach of the Dallas Cowboys, and in three years would win a couple of Super Bowls. It was, you know, it was outrageous, the stuff that they had going on at the University of Miami back then. So when you made that jump, were you, I mean, obviously with the pay raise, I'm sure you were happy to do just about anything they asked you to, but were you disappointed at all that you were leaving the University of Miami to cover the Dolphins instead? No, I mean, I, I really didn't think of it that way because on the other hand, uh, I was now covering Don Shula. <laughs> True. <laughs> and his quarterback, I don't remember whose quarterback was, um, uh, 13, um, Oh, yeah, Dan Marino. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, the Dolphins were a big deal, too. They were down on their luck in the late 80s. But it was still Don Shula and Dan Marino. I would say to you right now, and here we are in 2020, and most Dolphins fans who have stuck by the Dolphins for the last 20 years of utter frustrating mediocrity at best. Mm -hmm. The reason that they are fans is because they grew up uh, on Don Shula and Dan Marino and being relevant every year, if yeah. not championship caliber every year. And that's what they're holding on to. And that's what they're waiting for uh, a reincarnation of. Mm -hmm. So how long did you cover them for uh, at the Herald uh, in the second stint, I think, right? Second stint? Uh, right. So ESPN hired me in 2000, uh, I want to say, yeah, 2000. And, uh, and I was away for, for three years. And then I came back in 2003. Came back in 2003. What made you uh, decide to leave the Herald for ESPN? Well, um, you know, obviously at the time it was ESPN. Yeah. It was a bigger outlet. It was more money. It was television. I have an ego. I'm stupid. <laughs> so I thought about it. And uh, yeah, I'll do that. Okay, fine. Well, I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so then what were you doing at ESPN while in that three-year period? Yeah, I was a the South Florida bureau reporter. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and it's interesting because, you know, that whole episode, that whole time in my career, it was upside down a little bit. Um, supposedly the reason I was hired was to cover the NFL and then nine 11 happened mm. and suddenly ESPN drew back on its NFL coverage. As far as the bureau reporters were concerned, it used to be that once upon a time, 
they would send a reporter to every game. Now, all of a sudden, they were sending, you know, a reporter to maybe five games. And the reporters that they were going to send weren't the last guy hired. It was going to be Andrea Kramer and Sal Palantonio and Ed Werder and those folks. Those are the people that, that went on the NFL assignment. And so you had to find someone or they had to find someone to go and cover other stuff. And that turned out to be me. What I didn't like was that a lot of the other stuff, while fun, it made me a little uncomfortable. You know, for example, let me see if you figure this out and maybe I'm just wrong, but you tell me. They sent me to Montreal uh, to do a story on the then Montreal Expos who had like eight Hispanic players uh, on the roster in the lineup day to day. And mm-hmm. their general manager, Minaya, is Hispanic. They sent me to Puerto Rico to interview um, another Hispanic player's wife. They sent me to Yankee Stadium to talk to Mariano Rivera. Uh, are you seeing a trend here yet? I am seeing a trend, yeah. Okay. And look, so I wasn't born in the United States. I'm Cuban. I was born in Cuba. I, you know, I love the fact that I'm Cuban. Mm-hmm. And I love, you know, the whole shebang. And I love Cuban food. And, and English is my second language. But I can do it. I could cover the NFL. Yeah. And I had proven that I could. And suddenly I'm the, I, I felt like I was being pigeonholed, mm-hmm. uh, cubbyholed, whatever. And <laughs> yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't thrilled with that. And I think probably I developed a bad attitude mm-hmm. and probably they recognized that I had a bad attitude <laughs> and that was that. And that was that. So then you uh, returned to the Herald in 2003. How'd you feel about coming back home? Yeah, so it was fine. It was fun. It was familiar. Um, It was obviously, I guess the people looking in were were seeing a step down or a step back. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't care what the people looking in are thinking. Uh, I was doing what was best for me and my family. And, and I was doing it as best I could. And I had faith that something was the reason for me being in that spot. Mm-hmm. And I embraced it and it was fine and it was good. Well, I would say it's fine. You've been there since, right? <laughs> Worked out Absolutely. okay. Sure. Well, that is quite a journey, certainly. Uh, lots of winding roads there, but you ended up finding your spot. That's for sure. Absolutely. And it's been fun. And South Florida is, you know, it's a vibrant, a vibrant place. A lot of things happen um, that don't necessarily all include the Miami Dolphins, but nonetheless, we're, you know, 
<laughs> we're not standing still down here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I can't, I can't really complain about any of it. Oh, that's good to hear. But let's talk about the present day and talk a little bit about the Dolphins. How's that sound? Yeah, no, that's awesome. All right, days so- ahead. Exactly. Better do that. Um, so obviously, Dolphins found their man to a tag, le- tag, tag, le- uh, I still don't know how to pronounce it. I can spell it now, but I still don't know how to pronounce it. They got two. Um, okay. So let's let's do this exercise. Okay. Tongue of Iloa. Think tongue. Okay. Tongue of Iloa. Tongue of Iloa. The Dolphins picked yeah. two. Tongue of Iloa. Bang. Got it. Uh, they picked him up, fifth overall pick. Everybody's very excited. He does come with a few medical red flags. So, in your view, how do you think the Dolphins are going to handle his first season? Right, that's a big question because Tua says that he's ready to roll, that mm-hmm. he's been given uh, medical clearance and that he is able to play. And, in fact, in the lead-up to the draft, he said, if there's a game tomorrow, I could play. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> that's more of a you know, a team decision rather than a Tua decision because between Tua playing and saying that he's playing, there's a wide gap that includes the Dolphins have to actually get a hold of him and examine him and see where he is. Mm -hmm. And if he is where he says that he is, then we're talking about practices, practices. And then if he practices the way they want, we're talking about learning the system, learning the speed of the game, playing in preseason, this, that, and the other thing, perhaps in a bridged training camp. The thinking is that, you know, Tonga Law is not going to be the starter on opening day, that that will be Ryan Fitzpatrick. Yeah, that makes sense. I think uh, Brian Flores was up in New England for a long time, and he saw firsthand the uh, – benefits that catching what they call the Foxborough flu up here can have for a rookie, especially with the weird off season that we'll probably have. So, I mean, if he is, yeah, I guess if he is healthy, do you see them not playing him just to be super extra cautious? I mean, there, it doesn't seem like there's an easy answer for them. Right. Well, let's, you know, think about this. Suppose that he's a hundred percent healthy. Mm-hmm. Suppose that that surgery to repair the fractured hip, which is an injury that typically happens to someone who's been in an auto accident, <laughs> is 100% and he's absolutely ready to be, you know, in a game and is able to defend himself and protect himself as NFL defensive linemen come at him. Mm-hmm. Even if that's so, now we're talking football. We're no longer speaking about injury or durability or you know future of the franchise and from a football perspective he has to beat out the next guy Mm -hmm. and the next guy happens to be like I mentioned before Fitzpatrick who was the starter last year who is now under new offensive coordinator Chan Gailey Mm -hmm. who he played for in Buffalo who he played for with the New York Jets, whose offense he knows backwards and forwards. And, oh, by the way, he's got 16 years of NFL experience on top of that. And, oh, by the way, Tua has never stepped on an NFL field. (laughs) So you, 
you know, that's a lot to overcome, even if you're pretty great. Yeah. To say the least, Fitzpatrick has a leg up here, right? <laughs> Absolutely. A leg, an arm, a, a foot. Full on torso up. Um, but that is super exciting. And I'm sure Dolphins fans are going to be happy when they see him in the uniform, much not really mind as much when he gets on the field, all things considered. But with the so the Dolphins, three first-round picks. They used another one on an offensive tackle. And then the last one was a little bit of a surprise. They traded back, and they ended up with, and you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's Noah Igbenigany. Igbenigamy. No, that's not that bad. Igbenigany. Igbenigany. Yeah, uh, from Auburn. He's, uh, he's uh, the cornerback from Auburn. And, yeah, the, the Dolphins are going to really be a – a difficult exercise for play-by-play guys in the next (laughs) couple of years. Yeah. I think I saw somebody say that the equipment managers are displeased with those two first round picks. having to spell out the names. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that'll be fun. But he was a little bit of a surprise of a pick. I don't think uh, many, you know, around the media or anything had him as a first round selection. What's your evaluation of that pick? Um, well, really, all three of those first-round picks, what you really want if you're a team and you've got three first-round picks is that you're plugging in, you know, three first-round talents right away, and you're playing, and, and you're better because they're better than the guys that they replaced. For the Dolphins, it's not necessarily so. For the Dolphins, you know, we already went through the Tua scenario, for Igbenigany, uh, the idea is, you, my friend, now you have to beat out Xavier Howard, who has been to the Pro Bowl and had 11 interceptions in 2017 and 18. And you also have to beat out, you know, um, what's, uh, Byron, um, I forgot his name now, um, Byron Jeepers. Why am I forgetting this? I think it's Byron um, Jones. Right? Yeah, Byron Jones. Sorry. All these Igbaniganis and Tunga Bailoas, and I couldn't remember Jones. <laughs> I brain farted on Jones. What's that? <laughs> anyway, the point was- is, yeah, <laughs> you throw me, you throw me a mulligan, and I just <laughs> um, so. There's no way that he is going to beat out those two guys who together are the most expensive cornerback tandem in the NFL. Uh, The best case scenario for him is maybe he wins the the nickel corner, the slot corner job. And those guys play a lot, over 60% of the downs in the NFL. Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe that, that happens, but the Dolphins recognize that he has to fix some things. He's got ball skills, questions that he needs to, you know, clean up mm-hmm. and obviously speed of the game and all of that other stuff. But from my understanding is he's a hard worker. You know, he comes from a very strict background. Both his parents uh, are from Nigeria and they were Olympic athletes. Mm-hmm. So he's got the DNA. And he's got the work ethic. 
the rest is up to him. Absolutely. And then when you're just looking, so the first round picks obviously and naturally draw most of the attention. But when you're looking at the Dolphins draft boards from the second round on, are there any names that stick out to you that could be a surprising early contributor next year? I like the idea of Robert Hunt. And he was their second round pick, their first of two second round picks. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons that I like it. It's a total, you know, I'm not going to tell you that I sit here and watch tape and study the players. What I do is I basically regurgitate what my sources tell me about guys. Mm-hmm. And obviously over the years, I've, I've, you know, people talk to me, scouts yeah. and personnel people talk to me. And so they, they think that he has talent. They think that he has ability. Obviously he played at Louisiana Lafayette, not LSU. So it's going to take him a minute to adjust to the speed of the game. But this is the reason that I like him. When he was talking to us, and us being the reporters, at one point he was describing his play style. And he said, quote, I finish people. Oh, okay. Well, (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I like that. (laughs) Uh, That's a good attitude for an offensive lineman i think so you want someone that wants to you know i don't think he wants to hurt anybody but he wants to make sure that they are not in the picture he wants to finish them and that is something that the dolphins offensive line hasn't always had Mm -hmm. and certainly hasn't had a lot in the last couple of decades yeah always need a little bit of nasty on your line no doubt. No doubt. So all of this came from the Dol- from last year for the Dolphins, who basically deconstructed their roster in an attempt to fully start a rebuild with Brian Flores as their, his first head coaching gig ever, really his first big responsibilities, even when he was quasi-defensive coordinator up in New England. How would you evaluate his first season as head coach, and what do you think he can do to improve next year? All right, so... They were terrible, right? Yes. Uh, you, you called it deconstructing. Uh, it was a tank. It was a total <laughs> tank job, right? They got all of their best talent and got rid of them. And not just got rid of them. Laramie Tunsil, who went to the Pro Bowl, was traded to Houston four days before the season opener. Mm-hmm. Minka Fitzpatrick, who went to the Pro Bowl and was an all-pro last year, was traded to the Pittsburgh Steelers a week later. So they were doing that on purpose. Uh, They weren't, that wasn't the personnel department doing its best to put the best team possible on the field for the Miami Dolphins in 2019. Having said that, we get into the season and the head coach is going screw this. I'm not going to tank. I'm going to try. The the players who are in the locker room, all being in the locker room with less talent now, they're going, we've got a shot here. We've got an opportunity to, to you know, say something about ourselves. We're going to try. And eventually that terrible team won five of its last nine games and they finished five and 11. What that tells you it tells you that Brian Flores 
is a guy who has the respect of the locker room. It tells you that he gets players better later in the season, which is exactly what Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots culture has been doing for decades. They're better late in the year than they are early in the year. And it tells you that let's see what what he can do when he's got real talent, when he's got three first-round draft picks, when they've signed 10 free agents at a cost of $250 million. Let's mm-hmm. see what he, he's about when the playing field is not tilted to the other sideline. Mm-hmm. Um, the owner, Stephen Ross, told me, I've found my coach. And so, obviously, ownership believes in Brian Flores. And if you're a Dolphin fan, I would say you have to believe in Brian Flores also until further notice. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. And kind of on that same vein, so we were just talking last year was a complete tag. This year they dipped their toe into the free agency pool, or maybe more than a toe with the Jones signing at the very least. Um, And you got Tungvaluwa now, but nobody really knows kind of how that's going to shake out. So it's kind of a weird season for Miami. From your perspective, what where should fans' expectations be for how good this team should be next year? Well, they should be better. There's no doubt about that. Uh, you talked about dipping their toe in free agency. I mean, no one spent more than yeah. they did. And $150 million of, of that more was guaranteed money. That You can't do that every year. This is a you know, pretty much a one-time for the next few years kind of thing. Those are veterans. So those guys need to produce immediately, mm-hmm. immediately, unlike the draft picks who, you know, again, they aren't plug-and-play ready. And on top of that, we don't know how much work time they're actually going to get based on the current, you know, pandemic situation and the uncertainty of when teams will be regathering and so forth. But from a, from a veteran standpoint, from what they've gotten, how they finished and what they've added with experience, you better be good. Uh, If you're, if you're not a 500 team, something went wrong because uh, you were five and you were five and four your last nine games last year. And I know you don't just pick up the next year where you left off, but there is an expectation here that something good has to continue to happen. And here's the interesting part. We talked about how Brian Flores, um, you have to believe in him until further notice. Here's the caveat. When Nick Saban took over in 2005, his first year was good. He went nine and seven, and he was gone by the end of his second year. Tony Sperano, who followed him, won the AFC East his first year and was never over 500 again. Joe Philbin, who followed him, his best coaching job was his first year, and then his second year he had the bully scandal, and it was a mess after that, and he was never over 500. Adam Gase, his first year, followed Philbin. He got to the playoffs 
and then after that, never got to 500 again. So what I'm saying to you is Dolphin fans and the Miami Dolphins as a team have, a, have an understanding that their coaches in one year, that's not always who they're going to be their second year or any other year. Uh, so, you know, a little word to the wise there. Yeah. They've, uh, Dolphins have been spurned, it sounds like, this entire dec- or century, really, by coaches who do well their first year and then kind of fall apart the second year. So it'll be fascinating to watch. There's a lot of interesting moving parts down in Miami. And, I mean, Flores especially is quite a character. So looking forward to see how it all unfolds. It, it's going to be very interesting. And, you know, all eyes are going to be on the Dolphins, especially when Tonga Vailoa hits the field. When that happens, uh, this guy is not just supposed to be another quarterback. This guy is supposed to be the quarterback. The Dolphins have been through, I think, something like 19 or 20 quarterbacks since Dan Marino retired. Mm-hmm. And Trent Dilfer, before the draft, is talking about how Tunga Vailoa throws the ball better than Dan Marino. Um, he... He walked that back a little bit after I challenged him on Twitter for, for, for that. But he nonetheless said it to the Washington Post. Yeah. And so the expectation is once he's your quarterback and he's up and running, uh, competing for 8-8 eight and eight is not the thing. You better be competing for Super Bowls. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh... – I did. I re- I remember reading that Dilfer thing and thought that that was a little obviously a little strong before the kid comes on the field. But regardless, no matter what, with the college career he has, the expectations are going to be sky high. Fair or not? So it's an exciting time to be a Dolphins fan at the very least. Absolutely. You know, the big thing now is what number is Tua going to wear because we got to buy jerseys. Uh, that hasn't happened around here in a while. <laughs> Uh, yeah, as big of a signifier as any. It'll be great to watch. Now we'll move on to the final part of the interview here, which is just some quick hitter questions. How does that sound? Yeah, no, that's great. Sweet. So this can be as vague, general, or specific as you would like. What is your favorite football memory? Oh, wow. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> the quick hitter have to think back 30 years to that <laughs> question. Uh, uh, well, I guess it would have to be the season opener, I want to say in 94. Um, I think it was 94. Yeah, it was 94. And Dan Marino had missed the 1993, most of the 93 season with a, a torn Achilles. Mm-hmm. And uh, back then, it wasn't, you know, a, a home run every time you have surgery for that. Back then, it was, we'll see. Yeah. In the preseason of 94, he wasn't all that. He wasn't like himself. And there was actually a columnist down here that said the Dolphins should bench Dan Marino. Um, not me, by the way. And he comes out. <laughs> yeah, he comes out the season opener against the New England Patriots, and I think he threw for 435 yards and five touchdowns or four touchdowns. 
and you know, oh my gosh, um, <laughs> this guy's gonna be just fine. Yeah, <laughs> he's Dan Marino. We forgot that he's Dan Marino, <laughs> and that was just an amazing moment. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so this is I'm fascinated to hear the answer to this question because you have obviously interviewed a lot of characters over the, your extensive career. But if you had to pick one of the many, many people that you've interviewed over the years as your favorite interview subject, who would it be? Brian Cox, no doubt about it. Every single time he had something to say, every single time it was, it was interesting and insightful um, and oftentimes controversial. Mm. Um, this is the guy that went to Buffalo, actually, Days before he went to Buffalo, he talked about how he hated Buffalo. <laughs> and no, 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 not the team, but the players on the team, the city, <laughs> the people in the city, the weather, the state. <laughs> he hated everything about Buffalo. And then he shows up to the stadium and pregame, he comes out to the tunnel and, you know, gives them all a big, uh, you know, let's say a one-fingered salute on each hand. He was holding up number 11, yeah. as Steve Tasker said to me the other day. And, and, you know, obviously, the folks in Buffalo, if you've ever been to a game there, they're, they're lovely people, mm -hmm. but not during those three hours. <laughs> and not for the two hours of, of tailgating beforehand. <laughs> so uh, uh, there's, there's much you know, alcohol involved, I think. <laughs> and they weren't having it and he wasn't having it. And, you know, batteries thrown onto the field from transistor radios, I guess. I don't know where they got <laughs> batteries. Um, it was just crazy. And then Brian Cox sues the NFL <laughs> for it <laughs> because they forced him to go into a, to, to work in a racially tinged environment, he said. And he won. <laughs> amazing. So, yeah, Brian, I went to, you know, Brian Cox once challenged uh, the entire New York Jets sideline to a fight. So is, yeah. that's what Brian Cox was like. Yeah. Um, and I went to, um, I, you know, I asked him, can I go home with you this offseason? And we went back to his hometown of East St. Louis. <laughs> and I understood suddenly why Brian Cox had this attitude because it was that place, even back then, I have no idea what it's like now, was survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. Here's a place that at six o'clock, when the sun is going down, the lights, the street lights, not the street lights, but the traffic lights, they don't go, you know, red, yellow, green anymore. There is no red. They flash yellow so that people don't have to stop at the corner and wait for the light to change because too many people were being carjacked while they were stopped at the corner. Yes. Um, that's the kind of place that was. So I understood Brian Cox, but he was – you know, smart, articulate, um, all sorts of interesting. He's my favorite. Yeah, that is quite a treat to cover as a reporter, for sure. 
Uh, this might this might be tough for you. Uh, what's your go-to place in, uh, place to eat in Miami? My go-to place to eat, bro. I'm Cuban. <laughs> I eat Cuban food. Exactly. Versailles is uh, is if if you are ever in Miami. Uh, you gotta go visit Versailles. It's a, it, you know, it is an iconic place in the Cuban American community, mm. um, and it's on. We call it Calle Ocho. It's on Eighth Street. Go there, have some fun, and oh, by the way, the food is really good. Fantastic! I'll be. That's my first stop post quarantine. I'll tell you that much. Um, so what's something about your job that you feel like other people don't know or they don't really understand? Yeah, um, it's as simple as this. Um, folks sometimes, and especially the last couple of decades as the Dolphins have struggled, mm-hmm. uh, they're upset when you write things that are not uh, uplifting about the team, mm-hmm. that are not positive. Uh, Adam Gase once called me Captain Negative. <laughs> of course, he was in the middle of a of a two year uh, span where he was losing way more than he was winning. So he would call me Captain Negative. And then another time he asked me, "Why are you so so negative uh, about a player that I was, you know, criticizing?" And I said to him, "I'm not negative. I'm positive. I'm positive that guy sucks." <laughs> And, you know, so fans sometimes lose sight of the fact that I'm not there to paint a fantasy. Mm -hmm. I'm there to paint an actual accurate picture of what's going on. If a a player is indeed sucking, I'm not going to tell you, but hey, you know, in three years when he develops, it might be good. That's (laughs) not going to happen from me. Uh, I'm going to tell you what's going on and sometimes it's going to sting. And I get criticized sometimes by some folks that, well, you know, you're too critical. Well, I haven't seen the dolphins in a super bowl lately. Have you? (laughs) Yeah. Tough to, uh, you know, keep positive when there isn't a lot of positive things going around, but that makes, yeah, makes a lot of sense that people wouldn't be happy for that, especially after years of not being particularly good. Right. Uh, and then finally, is there any, so you, you know, you're spent a long time in this industry now. How, is there anything you wish you knew back when you were starting out at the Miami news about this job? Hmm. Well, I, you know, not so much about this job. This, this job has been so great to me and it really lifted me out of, poverty that I grew up in. It, it has done amazing things. Um, people, you know, uh, not that that's a big deal, but people know my name. They know me. Um, so it's not so much about the job. I wish I had been able to foretell where the industry was going because obviously you know, the newspaper industry in 1990 is not the same as the newspaper industry in 2020. Mm. 
Now it's about subscriptions online as opposed to subscriptions at home. And, you know, the subscriptions online will never really, unless you're doing a bang-up job, keep up with the need um, to, to keep people employed. Mm-hmm. That's why you need advertising, except now advertising is down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I, I wish I had been able to, to foretell because there's other industries that really have um, weathered the, that storm. Television, obviously, mm-hmm. to many degrees being one of them. And obviously, online sites being another. It, it's, it's way easier to sustain an online site now than, say, uh, a newspaper with an online site that has 50 reporters. Uh, it, it, you know, it's just way more cost effective. Yeah, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Benefit of hindsight, of course. Uh, but that'll be it, Armando. Thank you so much for joining and being really honest and insightful with all of your answers. I really enjoyed this conversation. No, it's been my pleasure, Liam. Uh, you know, reach out anytime you want to, like I told you before, anytime you want to ruin your listenership, just call me. <laughs> I'll help you. <laughs> well, we'll see how much it decreases, and then I'll double down and see how much more the next time. <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right. And thank you, as always, listeners, for tuning in. I'm your host, Lee McEwen, signing off.